1: We've had a lot of bad news. Just in the US alone, we've lost $40 billion annually in advertising revenue for the newspaper industry. That's an enormous percentage of what used to be spent on our local information needs. You know, I know that that story has parallels all across the world. And we've seen so many reporters laid off. In the United States, more reporters and newsroom workers have lost their jobs than coal miners.
2: Yes, it's certainly been a bad decade and a half for journalists. But on Future Tense today, some cause for cautious optimism. With the emergence of what Elizabeth Green, our first guest today, calls civic media. And what she means by that is coverage of local council politics and city developments, information that's important for the community, that helps people in making decisions about the immediate world around them. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Now, Elizabeth Green is the CEO of a civic media operation called Chalkbeat. She's also the co-founder of the American Journalism Project, the first venture philanthropy firm dedicated to local news.
1: How could it be that we have more information at our fingertips than ever before and yet less kind of constructive local information that actually shows us a difference we can make in our own communities? But that's what we're living with, and I think... The news feels overwhelming, it feels extremely negative, and I think people feel increasingly alienated from any way that they can make a positive difference in their community when all you're getting is nationalized or globalized headlines of catastrophe. And the truth is, even as all of that has happened, What's possible is to reconnect people to information about their own communities in places where they have
2: some locus of control. Chalkbeat specialises in local coverage of education policy and practice, and they now have bureaus in several U.S. communities, including Chicago, Detroit, Newark, New York City and Philadelphia.
1: Like you, I started as a local news reporter and I could see how important and powerful it is to cover local government. Local government is really powerful in shaping people's lives. And I started out covering schools in New York City for a local newspaper. And in 2008, during the financial crisis, that newspaper was one of dozens across the country to just fold outright. So as I saw that was happening, I thought, you know, first of all, what does this mean for me? And second, what does this mean for... Our country. So, what I did was, I said, okay, what if I could create a business model that, unlike the commercial model, which is clearly collapsing, was actually designed to support the mission of journalism and endure this challenging period.
2: Earlier this year, Elizabeth and her colleagues produced a report called The Roadmap for Local News which sought to try and get a better handle on the needs of the various organisations involved in the Loosely Connected movement.
1: I think we've had a lot of hand-wringing in this country and globally about a local news crisis, and yet there's also been 15 years of work at organisations like Chalkbeat to find solutions. We interviewed 51 practitioners around the country, a combination of journalists publishers, philanthropists, and readers to ask them all one question, which is, if in 10 years we are able to say that the United States has conquered our local news crisis, has served all communities' local information needs, what would it have taken for us to get there? And what was really cool is that in all these conversations with kind of different and diverse visionaries across the country, there were common themes and a lot of hope a lot of optimism and a clarity that there is a path out of the crisis and actually even more than that, that the crisis has created inside of itself the solution. And so we call that emerging movement the civic media movement.
2: And how extensive is that at the moment? It's
1: fledgling, but it's extensive. It includes our colleagues on the south side of Chicago who created a, a lab to do experiments with journalism and what it could look like to have people participate more in the creation of journalism. It looks like people in Detroit at our colleague Outlier Media who created really new forms of service journalism. Like Outlier Media has worked with in community with the people of Detroit to say, issues like housing, how can we create better opportunities around housing? And there's a project in New York City called Documented that works with immigrants in the U.S. to have community in just a WhatsApp group that is actually facilitated by a journalist who takes people's questions that they're having as they navigate life as an immigrant in New York City and helps them answer them with journalistic tools. So Chalkbeat, Outlier, City Bureau, Documented, there's dozens more projects like this across the country. We've seen incredible growth, both of New organizations like these, but also work that's happening in, for us, our legacy public broadcasting system is also seeing incredible innovation. We have coming out of WNYC in New York... We have a lot of amazing projects to build the news gathering capacity. So it's not just broadcast work, but also boots on the ground news gathering that they're doing. So it's really quite diverse of a movement and it's widespread, but it needs a lot more resources to get to the next level of scale. But I believe that it's more than possible for that to happen.
2: Now, way back, a decade and a half ago, when traditional print media outlets first began to see their business model crumble, there was great enthusiasm for what was called citizen journalism. The idea that trained journalists were no longer needed and that in the future, our news would be delivered by enthusiastic and committed amateurs, a diverse group of people whose combined efforts would help keep us informed and hold truth to power. Well, citizen journalism turned out to be a mirage. Instead, we largely ended up with an online porridge of opinion, hate and bias. And that's one of the reasons why Elizabeth Green believes that professional journalistic standards must remain at the core of the new civic media movement.
1: What we call civic media, it builds on the best of The american journalism tradition and it also improves on the worst so when i say builds on the best of our traditions here you know it includes investigative reporting public records requests verification by professionals who are paid to understand and make sense of and fact check what they're learning when i say improves on the worst in our country, our tradition of American journalism has really been, especially in the last 50 years, really dominated by the white and the affluent and by men. And we have a much more diverse. Both representation in the people leading the civic media movement, but also in the people we seek to serve. When you have an advertising based model of news, you of course are going to look to prioritize audiences who are the most affluent, the most interesting to advertisers. But when you have a mission-driven model, you can put the people whose contributions have been most marginalized and whose voices have been least included in public dialogue actually put more priority on including those communities. And that's what we're seeing with this movement. So those are some of the things that are different and some of the things that are the same.
2: And how do you safeguard impartiality, if you like, to ensure that the information that is conveyed is actually true?
1: Yeah, I mean just like in any endeavor whether it's the advertisers or philanthropists you have to make sure and I can't emphasize more that it's so important that the people paying for the work not influence the work, right? We have to have editorial independence. It's the entirety of journalistic integrity is to create true independence so that the journalists can figure out what's true or what's their best understanding of what's true and report that even if it's going to upset people, especially people in power and even people who are paying a lot of money in either an ad or a donation. So it's incredibly important to safeguard. But I really don't think it's any different than the safeguards that we need to erect for other sources of support, whether that's government support, corporate support, advertising support, or philanthropy. It's all about creating professional practices, standards and accountability to make sure that everybody is operating with integrity.
2: Elizabeth Green there in New York, the co-founder of the civic media outlet, Chalkbeat. Now across the Pacific, Anna Draffin heads up an Australian project with a similar mission. Anna is the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative. And by public interest journalism, she means.
0: So it's original content that records, reports, or investigates issues of public significance. This is important because it helps engage Australians in public debate, make sure that we're having informed decision making in our, our democratic decisions, and also keeps us informed in you know, amongst community and local events. That latter point is obviously of particularly importance, as we've seen through the various floods, bushfires, and of course, the global pandemic.
2: And of course, not all local news is going to be public interest journalism, is it?
0: No, and there is a distinction between regional and rural communities versus a metropolitan So your local sporting fixture, we would not categorise as public interest journalism, But in the event that there perhaps has been match fixing or a drugs case, then that is of public significance because it takes on health reporting and governance issues.
2: And are political stories, political issues important in this context of of public interest journalism and particularly local government issues?
0: Absolutely. And part of that work, we've actually started a content sampling project actually look at the levels of local council coverage, as well as other issues in terms of community events, but also looking at local courts reporting and other civic institutions. So every month we select a different combination of local government areas and our team then undertakes an audit of the local news content and looks for coverage across local council, local courts and local events and really starts to assess how much coverage different outlets have different expertise in their reporting team and so we start to really get a flavour of the local news content that that community has access to.
2: Which regions in Australia are the least served by public interest journalism at the moment? What areas of the country?
0: So if I answer it in reverse, we're seeing very high levels of news availability across capital cities and along the broad and east coast, particularly high density in Central Australia, Sunraysia, the south and mid-north of New South Wales and southeastern Queensland. But what we're seeing in terms of lower news density that is particular to regional and remote areas in Queensland, the Northern Territory, West Australia and South Australia. So, for example, we know that there are four local government areas which have no local news, be it print, radio or digital. Two of those are in Tasmania in the Central Highlands and Flinders areas. And then Upper Gascoigne in WA, there are 25 other LGAs spread across the country, but a lot of those concentrate in Queensland that have no local print or digital news. So it certainly is a growing trend and either no local news or low news really just means those communities are not fully informed.
2: One of the big differences between the situation for Australian public interest journalism outlets and their American counterparts is donations. Private philanthropy. It exists in Australia, but it's small beer in comparison to the US situation. But Anna Draffen hopes that will change. She's campaigning to have local news recognised as a public good under Australia's charity law.
0: So that would instantly enable news businesses to actually reorganise themselves and set themselves up as a not-for-profit business. They will get access to a number of tax concessions and then also to accept donations as well from the general public.
2: Is it possible that that status will change?
0: So the Productivity Commission has an active inquiry into philanthropy at the moment and that is certainly one area that they will be closely looking at. I think it is, without a shadow of a doubt now, a broad awareness across all levels of government that news provides public benefit and the ACCC has actually found that news is a public good and therefore putting in new measures that will safeguard news is seen as beneficial and something that needs to be looked at
2: the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, and the rise of civic media in the United States. If you want more details, you'll find links on the Future Tense website. And thanks to Anna Draffin and Elizabeth Green. Changing tack now, and not so long ago, this was a familiar sound for people working in the media industry. The sound of a newspaper printing press churning out hundreds of thousands of editions. Until the beginning of this century, print media dominated the classified advertising market, but as we all know, those days are long gone. Conventional wisdom for at least the last decade has favoured targeted online advertising as the best way for brands to reach consumers. But according to advertising and integrated marketing expert Sven Broadmerkel, there's now something of a reassessment going on.
3: Historically, of course, from an advertiser's perspective, the idea that, you know, we could have hyper-targeted ads, meaning we can really pinpoint particular consumers and send customized messages to these particular consumers, sounds really great. Because fundamentally, it is more efficient, it reduces waste, and therefore, from an advertiser's or marketer's perspective, it kind of has been promoted as a silver bullet basically starting around 2010, 2012-ish. But then already five years later, we saw that major advertisers, Unilever or Procter & Gamble said, okay, we have basically focused on this particular part of advertising and we noticed that it actually doesn't work as well as we expected it to work. And there are several reasons for that. And I guess we will have a look into these particular reasons why Bigger brands came to this sort of reassessment.
2: There is an opaque side to targeted advertising, isn't there? It's very difficult to actually work out whether it does work or
3: doesn't work if you're a brand. Well, yeah, on the surface level, it's always been promoted as something which is much more transparent than say, traditional mass media advertising, because you can get all these different metrics into views and engagement rates and so on and so forth. So on that particular level, brands or marketing managers might actually argue we have a much more, say, hard figures. We can, you know, show that this particular form of advertising works, but then, In real life, of course, things become much more messy. So in the marketing world, we actually call this a kind of last attribution or last attribution error. So you could say someone was exposed to an ad on social media. They might have engaged with it. And then we might even be able to track whether they actually bought something or not. But whether or not the actual say, nudge or initial prompt to have a look into this particular product or service came from something other than the social media ad. It could have been a friend's recommendation, it could have been some TV ad or something else, and then they might have searched it online, and then... They were exposed to Facebook ad, and then they might have bought it in the marketers or on a superficial level of metrics, you would know, say, okay, yeah, the social media ad was the one that actually was effective, but it wasn't necessarily. And now trying to unravel this particular kind of complex process. And marketers try to do this with kind of attribution modeling and so on and so forth. But in the end, it's actually pretty, pretty messy business. And therefore, just saying, okay, we have certain kind of hard metrics on a particular social media doesn't necessarily mean that it was actually really important leading towards this particular outcome we saw in the end.
2: So there is this this idea, isn't it, that I know that advertising analysts are now talking about that even though broadcast communications, if you like, you know, even though it can't be targeted in the way that online can be, it can be very successful in imprinting the brand on culture. Exactly. So this this is a recognition, isn't it, that we're not just influenced in buying by our own needs, but also by what others around us are Mm -hmm. doing and what they will think of what we're buying.
3: Absolutely. And that goes to the heart of the issue. Think about, say, you are buying a luxury car. And of course, you are buying a luxury car for certain reasons. You might just say, oh, because it performs better. But we all know that certain other reasons might play a role. It might be about, you showing off that you can actually afford a luxury car. It might signify something about your sense of style and aesthetics and so on and so forth. The thing now is, if there was only hyper-targeted advertising, after a certain period of time, people would forget about how sophisticated and elegant and stylish these cars actually are. And then you, as the buyer, you would lose, to a certain kind of extent, value because other people don't recognize anymore what a kind of sophisticated, stylish kind of consumer you actually are. So fundamentally, it says if you want to build a brand, you advertise to potential buyers, but you also advertise fundamentally to a broader audience who needs to recognize what this brand actually is all about so that people who buy this particular brand can actually enjoy the knowledge that other people might know what this brand is actually all about. They are fundamentally purchasing or driving or whatever. So you could say that to keep a brand alive and valuable, you need a mass audience. And reaching a mass audience, still to this day, fundamentally means using traditional mass media. That's why we call them mass media, because they have still a larger reach than narrowly targeted advertising.
2: Now, the mantra against that, I guess, is that mass media advertising is wasteful because it's expensive, it's costly. It costs a lot of money, say, in the United States to have an ad on mainstream television... Definitely. ...during still, the Super Bowl.
3: Still in uh, you Australia. Know, that's the classic mm-hmm.
2: one, isn't it? Or I suppose, or during an AFL game or a rugby international test. But there's also signalling advantages, some would say, in the fact that you spend that much money yeah. on advertising...
3: Exactly. And that's actually a kind of funny aspect of it. And it goes against this kind of efficiency thinking. So we need to separate the idea of something being efficient, meaning we don't have to spend as much on it, to being effective. One could argue mass media advertising is still in certain ways, more effective, because it basically, again, it signals to a consumer that if I am willing to spend that much money on an ad on the Super Bowl during the NFL or AFL grand final, if I'm willing to spend so much money, I actually do have trust in the quality of my product. And even though we might not consciously think about it as consumers in those terms, On a kind of subconscious level, we probably still do. So it goes back to a fundamental evolutionary principle. You mentioned the word costly signaling. Darwin was very concerned about the fact that he couldn't quite explain the peacock's tail because in terms of survival of the fittest, it is actually a disadvantage. You know, it prevents the peacock from fleeing from predators. It's costly to maintain in terms of energy. The animal has to spend on maintaining this highly elaborate tail. But then in terms of mating, it is an advantage because peahens have noticed that, ah, if this particular peacock can maintain this elaborate tail, he is fit. He is healthy. He is my choice to mate with. That's what we mean in biological terms, of evolutionary terms, costly signalling. And brand advertising on mass media, which is expensive, can have a somewhat similar effect. I am prepared to spend so much money. It's costly. It seems to be a disadvantage to me because I'm spending all that money. But fundamentally, it's a signal of quality and trust.
2: Now, there's also a reassessment theory Around mass media advertising, that even though it's not targeted, so it's not Mm -hmm. directed specifically at you and and right there in front of your eyeballs, it does have the potential to bypass an audience's cognitive defenses. (laughs) Could I get you to explain what that means?
3: Okay, so there are a couple of theories, of course there have been for decades, about how advertising actually works. And one theory, which would be aligned to a kind of sales promotion, sales activation stream of advertising, would say, okay, I can actually persuade consumers by means of rational argument, and even though the rational argument is only a cheaper price. Okay, and this might be true, of course, in some instances, but again, when it comes to brand building, building this emotional connection, which is much more fluffy, one could say, as compared to rational argument, the theory is that this kind of advertising works much better if people, counterintuitively, actually pay less attention to it. Because then our kind of Cognitive defenses aren't up. We aren't really prepared to argue against, you know, certain things we might see in the end, but it still has a kind of long-term memory effect, which predominantly works means, as we said, by emotion, being kind of effectively, positively inclined towards a particular brand. And this might, in the end, then, when it comes to us walking into the supermarket, might make the difference. So we call this low attention processing. Just imagine, think about yourself sitting in front of the TV and there's an ad break on and you're basically not really paying attention to it but you might still pick up on the kind of music and you recognize the music that goes with the brand and you might see some other kind of particular colors and so on and so forth. All this basically seeps in more or less subconsciously but works as a kind of long term memory reminder of my effect disposition to this particular kind of brand. So that's the theory about mass media marketing. The less attention people pay, the more effective, counterintuitively, it might be in the longer term.
2: So in summary, if you're a brand and you're looking to advertise, the evidence at the moment seems to be suggesting, as we've discussed, that hyper-targeted personalized advertising Mm. isn't possibly as good as the hype once had Mm. it. And that mass marketing on television, in newspapers, on radio, isn't as inefficient and wasteful as perhaps we've been led to believe.
3: It's but funny, one famous kind of academic paper in this realm actually says in the title, it's the waste that works in advertising. So going back to your point, we would probably say in summary at the moment that social media or hyper-targeted advertising is not the silver bullet as it was made out or expected to be. Actually, a more kind of numbers-driven research into this area would suggest that In general, as a brand or as a bigger brand, you should allocate a budget in a way that about 60% goes into emotion brand building advertising, which is still better done on traditional mass media, and about 40% into sales activation or sales promotion, for which social media might actually be a reasonably good way or at least one kind of tool in the arsenal you should use.
2: And bearing in mind, of course, the fact that we know that mass media is declining in terms of its reach. You know, there are arguments about how Mm -hmm. quickly it's declining, but it is on the downward slope.
3: If we just took reach as a kind of key measure, it probably is. It's just a matter of media fragmentation. So there are more and more channels out there. So each individual channel will probably reach fewer and fewer audience members. But then, of course, we need to think about these kind of traditional and online media integration that's happening. So when you think about a popular TV show, say on a commercial TV station, there will be a kind of web presence built around it, a social media presentation built around so that one kind of medium actually feeds on each other. And for these kind of media, I would still argue that the actual traditional TV presence is the driving factor which basically funnels people into these other outlets, so to speak, for this brand.
2: Well, Sven Broadmerkel, another reminder perhaps that things are never quite as simple as they seem. Thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And assistant professor Broadmerkel specialises in advertising and integrated marketing communication at Bond University on the Gold Coast. That's Future Tense for another week. Karin Savanovitz is my co-producer and co-creator. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an
0: ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.